today's episode is called How to Turn a Country Back to God. I was doing my regular nightly Bible reading last night. I was in the book of Hosea. I read chapters four to five. And right off the bat, it absolutely drew, drew me in because God is really speaking to Israel and telling them what they can do to turn back to him. He is calling out their sins and telling them how they've gone astray. And I could not help but think, man, this is America today. Hey guys, it's Amber, wife, mother, warrior, type A child of God. Here at Little Things, we examine everyday issues from a biblical perspective with one simple goal, to know and love God more. Thanks for joining me. And one of the prayers that I've had for quite a while now is that God would help America to turn back to him. Listen, I want every nation in the world to turn to God. That would be a beautiful, wonderful thing. But right now I'm living in America and I see how far we've fallen. I think we're very close to being toppled um, as a country just because we have completely gone into idolatry. And so, you know, if there is a chance to turn around and go back and become a nation under God, I'm all for that. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm going to tell you six things that I identified as I was reading through Hosea chapter four and five, and just steps that you take to turn a country back to God. And you can see if those are steps that you're willing to take. And um, we can pray and we can certainly be doing our work, sowing seeds, asking other peoples to join us and to try to turn this nation back to God. So step number one is found right away in Hosea chapter four, verse one. It says, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And I think that pretty much sums up our country right now. I mean, it's not impossible to find love, but it is definitely becoming harder. And we don't even want to put one nation under God in our Pledge of Allegiance anymore. We want God completely out of our nation, and we don't want to acknowledge him at all. And step one of turning a nation back to God is to acknowledge God. And that means to stop pretending that we are the gods, that we are the end-all be-all, that whatever we want, whatever we feel, whatever we think— is right, is right. It means to stop elevating our celebrities, our YouTubers, our sports stars to the status of gods because they are not gods. It means to stop listening to all the voices that tell us to do things that are contrary to God's word. It means to make God's word supreme. And I know that sounds like such a crazy thing in our country right now. Because we want it to be all about us and about how we feel. And we think that we somehow have, quote unquote, evolved into something. But you know what? This is, it's all just a lie. Sinners have always been sinners. And Satan has always tried to convince us that we can be like God. But listen, God never, ever created men to be little gods. God is God. Man is man. And we do not get God's glory. So step one in turning a country back to God is going to be acknowledging that there is a God. 
letting his word stand as the authority, treating his word as what it is, true, holy, righteous, letting it speak for itself. And that's a far, far cry from where we are today. But that's step one. And step two follows right along that path, because step two would be to take God's way seriously. This is what we read in verse two. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Listen, I have been um, definitely listening to my daughter's catechism classes because I know now that God gave us moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. And the moral law is the law that is written on all our hearts. It's the Ten Commandments. And this is the basis of civilized society. The Ten Commandments are don't murder. Don't steal other people's things. Obey authority. Listen, when we, when we lose these things, we have complete and total chaos. This is what it was like in the days before the flood. People were violent. People were wicked. In the book of Judges, we read, everyone did what they saw fit. Everybody was a law to themselves. Everybody did whatever they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do it. And that is sort of where we're at now. In fact, a lot of people, A, do not follow the laws if they don't agree with the law. So if the speed is 55 or 65 or whatever it is, and they just feel that that is a silly law. They just don't see any reason to obey it. And B, people don't obey authority enough that they don't care about the laws because they say, well, that is not somebody I voted for. Why do I care about that law? That person put that law into place and I don't care about that person. So therefore, I don't have to follow that law. Well, do you see how this breaks everything down? If we start justifying the reasons why we shouldn't obey the laws, now we've underpined the whole basis of laws. Now laws don't have any authority. And we're right back to the days before the flood and the days of the judges where everybody did as they saw fit. There's a reason that God wrote the laws on our hearts. Because if we're going to avoid chaos, we all need to listen to God's law and our conscience, which God gave us so that we are supposed to feel guilt if we're not obeying the laws. But we have done a very good job in this country of dulling our consciences. And we've done that by watching shows, by listening to music, by watching people over and over and over disobey the laws and not care and make a point that they don't care because in their own mind, that isn't a law they need to follow, or that's a silly law, or they're above the law, or whatever it is. Listen, God says we are to take his ways seriously. And if we don't, well, we're just in chaos. Step three, leaders need to lead instead of feeding on and encouraging sin. This is in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. It says this, The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchange their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to list the scandals, 
But I will tell you this, we need godly rulers. Old Testament leaders who transformed the nations did such a good job. You can see how when the Old Testament people had good leaders, they turned to God. And when they had evil leaders, they turned to idolatry. Look at David, look at Jehoshaphat, look at Hezekiah, who tore down the places of idols, who um, led the people back to worship of God, and the people followed. In this country, we have had leaders who have disobeyed God, who have led the people into sin, who have fed on wickedness, and the people have followed hook, line, and sinker. Listen, we need godly leaders. We need people who will stand up and do what is right and lead with integrity. And I'm talking about the kind of integrity like Joseph, who would rather run away than fall into an easy sin. And I'm talking about the integrity of Daniel, who, even though the other people in the government looked for ways to frame him, they couldn't find him. Because it wasn't negligent. He wasn't leaving things undone. And he was trustworthy in all that he did. The guy wasn't cutting corners. He was doing what was right and what was good. And though everybody else was taking the easy way out and looking for ways to manipulate and get ahead, Daniel did what was right. Those are the kind of leaders that we need. We need the kind of leaders who say, guys, listen. We're going to go a different direction. We're going to start doing things right. We're going to lead with integrity. We're going to live with integrity. We're going to pay attention to what's going on. We're going to put God first. And we're going to turn this country around. Step four. Now, this one might hurt a little bit. (laughs) I'm saying that to myself as well as you. But we need to stop overconsumption of food drinking, and products. Listen to verse 10 of Hosea chapter 4. It says, They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but will not increase because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. Listen, we're out of control. We've got the all-you-can-eat buffets. We've got food sizes that are completely out of control. We sit on the couches with our bags of snacks. We binge drink. We make drinking a game. Um, Boats, resorts have ridiculous and obsessive drunkenness. Look at spring break. Look at the beaches. Look at people pouring alcohol down each other's throats just to get drunk as fast as you can. Look at how we've made a game out of it. Look at our houses full of more than we can take care of. We have built bigger barns. We have garages that are overflowing. We have basements that are overflowing. We have yards that have stuff in them. We have gone crazy with consumption. And look, God loves to bless us. He loves to give us good gifts, but when we overconsume, we really cut ourselves off from doing the best that we could do. So when we're overweight, we can't do all that we'd like to do. We're sluggish, we're tired, 
We aren't able to have the energy that we would otherwise have when we overdrink. Look, you can't be productive. You just don't feel at the top of your game. This mass acquisition that we've done leads to a mess. Houses are a mess. Garages are a mess. Yards are a mess. What does that do? Well, we get bogged down by clutter. You get to the point that you can't even do all the things that you would otherwise do because you have so much stuff to take care of. We spend all our time taking care of stuff instead of doing the things that we want to do. I think I've mentioned before that my son called me in several months ago now to look at um, an interview that Elon Musk did with Joe Rogan. And Elon Musk was saying that he had gotten rid of basically a good portion of all of his possessions. He sold his houses. He got rid of things that he um, had acquired. And Joe Rogan said, why did you do this? And Elon Musk said, because I don't want to spend my life taking care of stuff. I have too much to do. Look, I, I hope you feel the same. Because I don't know anybody who gets to the end of their life and says, you know, I really wish I would have spent more time with my stuff. Or if only I had gathered up more. Usually at the end of people's lives, and I know this firsthand, I worked as an elderly companion for years. First of all, at the end of people's lives, they typically have the possessions that fit into a room. Very often they are living in a nursing home room or they have a very small apartment and their possessions really come down to necessities. And everything else is gone. All the things that they thought were important, they're all gone. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Because all they need is what they need to live on. And what they want more than anything is to spend time with the people that they love. But this is the other part of it. When we have so much stuff and we can't keep our house clean, we can't keep our yard clean, and we can't keep our garage clean, um, my guess is we're not being as hospitable as we otherwise would. I know in my own life, that was definitely the case. I had a, uh, many, many years when I struggled to keep my house clean. And finally, my husband and I did a major purge in our house and we got rid of about half the stuff that we had. And when we did that, we found that it's pretty easy to keep our house clean now. It, we just can't bring more stuff in. The more stuff we have, the harder it is to keep clean. And listen, we have people over all the time now. And people come over without asking. They just knock on our door and it's not a problem. We had a friend stop over. They gave us like two minutes notice. They were going through their, they don't even live in our, our state. They were down the road and they called and they said, oh, we didn't know if you'd pick up if, if you were home or not. And we're like, yeah, we're home. And they were at our house two minutes later. And it's such a blessing to be at a point in our life where we open our door wide and ask people to come in and sit down and talk so that we can encourage them and encourage them in the Lord. And so listen, guys, this overconsumption of food, drinks, products, you know, yeah, it, it, it may be a struggle. I get it. I have, for most of my adult life, been struggling with my weight. It's something I work on every day, and I'm working with this clutter factor. And I'm trying to, but this is part of the deal. We got to get back to what's important. And people are always more important than things. Okay, we're going to move on. Step five, 
humility. Now we're going to go ahead to Hosea chapter 5, verse 5 for this. It says, Israel, er, Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Look, God doesn't share his glory. Scripture reminds us over and over that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you look at the Old Testament kings, you see how often they stumbled when pride became a thing. King Saul started out very humble. He was the first king, and he didn't even seem to think that he was able or or worthy of being king, but very quickly, very quickly, this idea of being king went to his head. And he decided that his decisions were better than God's. And so he, he started not listening to God. He didn't quite obey him. Asa was a king who did so many good reforms for God. But at the end of his life, he became proud. He had this foot disease that was severe, but he never asked God for help. Hezekiah did amazing reforms, and God rescued him from the Assyrians, this huge, massive army that could have decimated Israel. But then Hezekiah became proud, and he showed all of his treasures to Babylon, and God said, you know, that was silly. They are the very people that are going to take all these treasures away. Uzziah was a king who had done so many good things for God, and he reigned for like 40 years, and he was a tremendous good, good, godly king. But at the end of his life, he decided he wasn't going to do things God's way. In fact, he was going to do the job of the priest, and he was going to offer incense in the temple of the Lord. And even though the priest came and said, don't do it, it's it's not your role, that's not what you should be doing, he was going to do it anyway. And God struck him with leprosy, and he died alone in his own little house, away from his family. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he did amazing, great, tremendous things. God gave him visions. He was able to do things, so many things for the Lord. But he told us that he had a thorn in his side, and he prayed and he asked God, take this thorn away. I think I can serve you better if I just don't have this thorn. And God said, my grace is sufficient. Because when you are weak, I am strong. You get the idea. Humility is important to God. It's important that we remember that God is God and we are so much lower than he is. We are his servants. But you know, our human nature, our sinful nature, when we have small successes and when we have many successes, given to us by God, done by God's power, so often that wells up in pride. That's why I pray for my leaders to have humility. If we are going to be used by God, we have to remember our place. We are God's people. God's people. We're not God's. Any victory that we have is because God worked through us, is because we are working with God's strength. We are using the gifts he bestowed on us. How quick we are to claim victory. 
how quick we are to think we had something to do with it. Listen, if you want to be used by God, you have to stay humble and you have to remember it's all him. A great way to be unusable by God is to become proud. And that, after all, was the sin of Satan, pride. He didn't want God to be God. He wanted to elevate himself above God or equal to God, and God does not do that. All right, number six. In chapter five, verse 11, we read, Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. We have to destroy the idols as they pop back up. Look, we have to quit paying to watch idolatrous things on TV. We have to quit watching people who are clearly doing demonic things. We have to quit listening to music that glorifies sin. We have to quit striving for more and making our status our God. We have to stop putting things before God. And this is going to be a lifelong pursuit to quench the idols as they pop up in our life. And how are we going to do that? We are going to make time for God. If God is your number one, you are going to make him a priority. You are going to put aside time for his word every day. A lot of people do it straight away in the morning. God, you're my number one priority. I'm not going to do anything before I read your word. And that is a great way to do it. When my kids were little, I never knew what time of day they would be getting me up. It could be four, it could be five in the morning. I could have a baby crying at 5.30 or six, or sometimes they'd sleep until eight. So I never knew what time I was going to be getting up. So when my kids were little, I read my Bible every night before I'd close my eyes. And that was a beautiful thing to do because you know what? I always figured God had the last word on my day. It doesn't matter when you do it. I don't care if you do it at morning or at noon or in the afternoon while your kids are sleeping or before you go to bed. It does not matter. Set aside time for God and set aside time to pray. As you read the book of Daniel, you'll notice that Daniel put put aside three times a day to pray. And you know, if you don't schedule prayer, If you don't set that time aside, you will go all day long and you will not get it done. So when you are motivated to pray, stop what you're doing and do it immediately. As the spirit moves you, just stop. Go to a corner. Go to your couch. Go to the foot of your bed. Go to your closet. Go wherever you need to go and get your praying done. Pray about our country. Pray about your family. Pray about our churches. Pray that God's word is spread in its truth and purity all throughout our land, all throughout the world. And here are a couple more suggestions for how you can get that prayer time in. Next time you get in your car to go do errands or or you have to go somewhere, just turn the radio off. Don't listen to anything and pray instead. Or go for a walk and leave your earbuds at home. Just pray. All that idolatry is, is putting other things in God's place. So stop putting God last. Stop filling your days full of everything but God and instead make him a priority. Put his word in your day and make sure that you're praying throughout your day. I always look at it that when I read the word, that's God talking to me. 
But when I pray, that's me talking to God. I have two quotes for you. Billy Graham said, To get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. We are not going to be able to do this of our own strength and of our own power. All these things, they are going to take God. Marshall Foster said, God's critical path for the rebuilding of our nation begins with the self-governing Christian. A godly nation is not simply prayed for and received. It is built line upon line, precept upon precept. The self-governing Christian is God's building block for a Christian nation. I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to throw in the towel on the United States of America. And I don't know where you're listening from. Maybe you're in South Africa, or maybe you're in Germany, or maybe you're in South Korea, or maybe you're somewhere else. I hope you're not willing to throw in the towel just yet on your nation. Because as long as we're alive, we are Christians. And block by block and line by line, and one person by another person, we become a nation. Let's take God's word seriously. Let's look at these steps and let's do what God says to turn our nations back to God. This has been Little Things because in God's kingdom, the little things are the big things. Have you checked out C.L. Whiteside's podcast, The Non-Microwave Truth, yet? It offers a fresh, vibrant Christian perspective to today's issues. CL is an educator and coach. He takes lessons from the Bible and applies them to everyday situations. I love to listen to him, and I bet you will too. You can find his podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Check it out, The Non-Microwave Truth. You may think you are just one person, but trust me when I say each person's prayers are heard and each person's support matters. We appreciate each and every one of you. If you haven't yet, please take the time to rate and review Little Things today and share it with others. Thank you and God bless.